Chapter Fourteen of the Four Faces by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Fourteen, in the Mists. At a quarter to one in the morning, Cranmere's big gray low-built car slid noiselessly along Wigmore Street and drew up at the entrance to one of the most imposing-looking houses in Cumberland Place. The imposing footman got down and rang the bell. He pressed the button four times in succession, as Lord Cranmere had told him to do. Almost at once the door was opened, and from the car window he saw a tall man in knee-breeches silhouetted, while a little way behind him stood another man. Lord Cranmere stepped out of the car, and we followed him, Baron Poppenheimer and Sir Aubrey Belston. In point of fact the real Sir Aubrey Belston was at this moment somewhere in the Malay States making a tour of the world. Lord Cranmere had told the chauffeur that he would not require him again that night, and I had noticed the man touch his hat in the belief that this actually was his employer who addressed him, for the real Earl of Cranmere had lent us his car. I heard the car purr away in the darkness, and an instant later the door of number 300 Cumberland Place shut noiselessly behind us. The footman in knee-breeches and powdered head, who had admitted us, led us without a word across the large hall, turned into a long corridor dimly lit by tinted electric lamps, turned to the left, then to the right, then showed us into a small, comfortably furnished room in which a fire burned cheerily, while in a corner a column printing machine ticked out its eternal news from the ends of the earth. We waited several minutes. Then the door opened and Hugus and Gastrell entered. Like ourselves he was in evening clothes. He advanced, shook hands cordially with Lord Cranmere, saying that he had received his telephone message. "'These are my friends of whom I spoke,' Cranmere said, Baron Poppenheimer and Sir Aubrey Belston. "'Delighted to meet you,' Gastrell exclaimed. "'Any friend of Cranmere's is welcome here. One has, of course, to be careful when one admits on these occasions. Isn't that so, Cranmere? Come upstairs and have some supper.' We followed him, ascending to the first floor. In a large, high-ceilinged, well-lit room an elaborate supper was spread. There were seats for thirty or forty, but only ten or a dozen were occupied. A strange atmosphere pervaded the place, an atmosphere of secrecy, of mystery. As we entered, the people at supper, men and women, had glanced up at us furtively, then continued their conversation. They talked more or less under their breath. Gastrell called for a bottle of bubbly, and about half an hour later we rose. The room was by this time deserted. Following Gastrell along a narrow passage, we presently found ourselves in a room larger than the one we had just left. Here between forty and fifty men and women sat at several tables. At one Chemin de Fer was in progress. At another Petit Cheval. At a third the game which of late years has become so popular in certain circles, Sandown Park. On all the tables money was heaped up, and on all sides one heard the musical cheek of gold and the crackle of banknotes. Nobody spoke much. Apparently all present were too deeply engrossed to waste time in conversation. As I glanced about me I noticed several people I knew intimately, and four or five I knew only by sight people well known in society. I was on the point of bowing to one woman I knew, who, looking up, had caught my eye. Just in time I remembered that she would not recognize me in my disguise. 
Then a man nodded to me, and I nodded back. He looked rather surprised at seeing me, I thought, and at once it flashed across me that, of course, he was under the impression that I was Sir Aubrey Belston, and probably he had heard that Sir Aubrey was traveling round the world. Gastrell, after a few minutes' conversation, found us places at a table where Sandown Park was being played. As I seated myself I found, facing me, Jasmine Gastrell, and for some moments I felt uncomfortable. I could feel her gaze upon my face as she scrutinized me closely, but even she did not penetrate my disguise. Lord Cranmere sat upon the opposite side of the table, Baron Poppenheimer on my side, two seats from me. On my right was one of the unintelligent-looking women I had met at Connie Stapleton's dinner party at the Rook Hotel in Newbury. On my immediate left a man I did not know. Connie Stapleton I had looked about for, but she was nowhere visible. So this was one of the ways Gastrell amassed money. He ran a gaming house. I now began to see his object in cultivating the acquaintance of people of rank and wealth, for I had long ago noticed that Jasmine and Hugeson Gastrell never missed an opportunity of becoming acquainted with men and women of position. Also I began to gasp Preston's line of action. Disguised as the Earl of Cranmere, who was known to be extremely rich, he had cleverly integrated himself with the Gastrells and led them on to think him rather a fool who could easily be gulled. Jack had more than once told me how artfully Preston played his cards when on the track of people he suspected and wished to entrap, so that I could well imagine Preston's leading the Gastrells on to ensnare him, as they no doubt supposed they were doing. For that he would not have been admitted to this gambling den, it evidently became one at night, unless the Gastrells had believed they could trust him and his friends implicitly, I felt certain. My friends tell me that I am a rather good actor, and Preston's coaching in Sir Aubrey Belston's mannerisms and ways of talking had given me a measure of self-confidence. When, therefore, I had played for a quarter of an hour and won a good deal, Jasmine Gastrell suddenly addressed me. I did not feel disconcerted. "'I mean to follow your lead,' she said. "'You are so extraordinarily lucky. How is it you manage to win every time?' "'Not every time,' I corrected. It's quite easy if you set about it in the right way. I wish I knew the right way, she answered, fixing her eyes on me in the way I knew so well. Won't you tell me how to do it? Different people must do it, as you put it, in different ways, I said. Forgive my asking, but are you superstitious? She broke into rippling laughter. Superstitious? I? she exclaimed. Oh, that's the last thing my enemies would accuse me of being. I paused, looking hard at her. And yet, I said seriously, judging by your eyes, I should say that you are remarkably psychic, and most people who are psychic are superstitious up to a point. I went on looking at her, staring right into her eyes, which she kept set on mine. She did not in the least suspect my identity. I was now positive of that. I had spoken all the time in an assumed voice. Yes, I said at last impressively. Yes, what? she answered quickly. She was not smiling now. Why do you say yes like that? What does it mean? Apparently our conversation disturbed some of the players, so I said to her seriously, indicating an alcove at the end of the room, Let us go over there. I should like to talk to you. 
She made no demur, and presently we sat together in the alcove, partly concealed by palms and other plants, a small table between us. "'Now tell me how you win, and how I am to win,' she exclaimed as soon as we were seated. "'I should dearly love to know.' I reflected, as I sat looking at her, that she was a consummate actress. I could not doubt that she ran this establishment in connection with Gastrell, yet here she was feigning deep anxiety to discover how she could win. "'I don't know your name,' I said at last, ignoring her inquiry, "'but you are one of the most amazing women, I would say one of the most amazing human beings, I have ever met.' "'How do you know that? I mean, what makes you say it?' she asked quickly, evidently disconcerted at my solemnity and at the impressive way I spoke. "'Your aura betrays it,' I answered in the same tone. "'Every man and woman is surrounded by an aura, but to less than one in ten thousand is a human aura visible. It is visible to me. This human aura betrays you, in too many cases, what I would call its victim. Your aura betrays you.' I leaned forward across the table until my face was close to hers. Then, still looking straight into her eyes, I said, almost in a whisper, "'Shall I tell you what I see? Shall I tell you what your life has been?' She turned suddenly pale. Then, struggling to regain her composure, she said after a brief pause, but in a tone that lacked conviction, "'I don't believe a word you say. Who are you? Whom have I the pleasure of speaking to?' "'Sir Aubrey Belston,' I answered at once. "'You may have heard of me. Good God, the things I see!' I pretended to give a little shudder. My acting must have been good, for on the instant she turned almost livid. Again she made a terrific effort to overcome the terror that I could see now possessed her. "'I will tell you what I see,' I exclaimed, suddenly snatching the wrist of her hand which lay upon the table and holding it tightly. Though almost completely concealed by the palm and plants, she strove to shrink still further out of sight as though the players engrossed in their games would have spared time to notice her. My eyes met hers yet again, but the expression in her eyes had now completely changed. In place of the bold, impelling look I had always seen there was a fearful, haunted expression, as though she dreaded what I was going to say. "'I see a room,' I said in a low, intense tone, holding her wrist very tightly still. "'It is not a large room.' It is a first-floor room, for I see the exterior of the house and the two windows of the room. I see the interior again. Several people are there. I cannot see them all clearly, but two stand out distinctly. One is Gastrell, to whom I have this evening been introduced. The other is you. Ah, yes, I see you now more clearly than before, and I see now another man, handsome, fair, about twenty-eight or thirty. I can see his aura, too. His aura within your aura. He loves you desperately, and, ah, I see something lying on the floor. A woman. She is dead. You... Her thin wrist suddenly turned cold. Her eyes were slowly closing. Just in time I sprang to my feet to save her from falling off her chair, for she had fainted. None of the players were aware of what had happened. All were too deeply engrossed. Without attempting to restore my companion to consciousness, for in the face of what I had now learned practically beyond to be a fact, I had no wish to revive her, I left her lying in her chair, stepped noiselessly along behind the mass of plants which occupied one side of the room, 
emerged further away, and presently took a vacant seat at a chemin de fer table. I glanced at my watch. It was nearly two o'clock. Thinking over what had just happened, and wondering what my next move had better be, and what Jack and Preston intended doing, I stared carelessly about the room. At all the tables play was still in progress. At some complete silence prevailed. From others there arose at intervals a buzz of conversation. Behind some of the lucky players stood groups of interested watchers. About the sideboard were clustered men and women refreshing themselves, the majority smoking and laughing, though a few looked strangely solemn. Among the latter I suddenly noticed a face I had seen before. It was the demure, dark little woman who at Connie Stapleton's dinner party had all the evening seemed so subdued. She was dressed quietly now, just as she had been then, and she looked even more out of place in this crowd of men and women gamblers, all of whom were exceedingly well-dressed, than she had looked at that dinner party. "'There is only one person I should be more surprised at seeing here,' I said mentally, "'and that is Dulcie.' The thought of her made me wonder what she would think if she could see me at this moment when suddenly my heart seemed to stop beating. Seated at the table nearest me but one, a table partly surrounded by a group of excited onlookers, was Connie Stapleton, and close beside her, engrossed in the game, Dulcie Challoner herself. End of chapter 14 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com